0: The Ordinary Folk Podcast is a project that highlights the fortitude of common everyday people through storytelling. This is a collection of stories that showcases silent human resilience, heartbreak, and triumph. You can follow this podcast at Ordinary Folk Podcast on Instagram, and you can be a part of this project by reaching out to me at Ordinary Folk at gmail.com. Uh, okay, so welcome to another episode of the Ordinary Folk Podcast. Um, today's episode is going to be another written submission. In conversation with today's interviewee, she's very concerned with being completely anonymous. Um, So names have been changed. The location of her story is very ambiguous. So it's just sort of countries and regions that are referred. So I hope everyone is comfortable with that and understands uh, her personal preference for complete anonymity. Um, And again, writing in a submission is something that you can do if you are concerned with people um, hearing your voice or you're intimidated by the interview process or you just want to share but the interview style is maybe not necessarily uh, something that you're keen on. So without further further ado, um, today's story follows Ramon, a 41-year-old small business owner. Her story centers around her painful upbringing and what she calls her second act, a beautiful reality with the love of her life in a new country. I was born and raised in the UK. My house was a broken home and I felt like my mom's entire life was about finding love. My mom went from boyfriend to boyfriend looking for love, looking for a love that she never found. My mom and I were not poor, but we weren't secure. We were somewhere in between. I hated all of her boyfriends. One of the boyfriends raped me. Another boyfriend of hers had two teenage sons that beat my mom badly twice. One of them also molested me. My mom was an alcoholic and drove me to school drunk half the time. She got pulled over and went to jail once and officers took her back home to her boyfriend and his violent sons. I learned that if I stayed out of sight and stayed quiet, nothing bad would happen to me. My dad was never really in the picture and I never called or thought of any of my mom's boyfriends as my father or even remotely close to father figures. It was all sort of made worse by being a single child. I felt very alone and very disjointed in my existence. I often thought that maybe my mom would be better off had I not even existed. She never seemed to connect with me in a way that other moms seemed to connect with their children. In that she never put my needs first. Again, it seemed like her chief concern was to find a partner for herself. When I got to middle school, my mom stopped drinking and the abusive stepbrothers moved out. These were two things that made life a lot easier. I noticed I felt more secure and more safe. Now here's where everything changed for me. I met a boy who would become my future husband. I was completely head over heels in love with him. I loved him and everything he was and everything he did. I don't think it's normal for a high schooler to love someone that deeply. It was also in that moment that my imposter syndrome began. I couldn't help but be confronted with the fact that here I was at the school having this incredible love story with these incredible friends while having to keep the secret of being raped, molested and abused. I felt like a degenerate that was handed a golden ticket to a great life. I had no idea how great it was going to become, but it started with meeting my boyfriend in middle school. Andre's parents were so active in his life. I remember thinking that right away. I think he might have even spoke about them the first time we met. Again, little did I know, my entire life was going to be changed through them. I went through middle school and high school with imposter syndrome. I never told Andre anything and never told my friends anything. They obviously knew that I was in insecure housing with a trashy mom and a disgusting stepfather, but they didn't know about the explicit past abuses that I had experienced. They didn't know what it was like to be at home with these people, and they didn't know what it was like to have that sort of reality hanging over you constantly. I actually went to the school counselor because one of my teachers had a suspicion about me. I didn't know what gave them that insight because I always tried to look clean and presentable. I never tried to point out my situation or allude to my reality in any way. Even with my friends, I just nodded along when they talked about Christmas, or family gatherings, or barbecues. When they talked about any of the things that normal kids would experience, I just nodded along. Andre's parents were Canadian, and they always intended on going back to Canada. Whenever Andre would talk about this, he always implied that I would be going with them. That would make my imposter syndrome flare up. There was something in his voice, or maybe it was what he was saying that made me think that he thought that I was valuable. And that's what made my imposter syndrome flare up. It's as if he didn't realize that I was worthless, like he couldn't see it. But of course, in my mind, he was always going to see it eventually. It was just a matter of time. I imagined myself flying away with him and his parents, and then having them find out that I wasn't really worth respecting. That I was born to a trashy alcoholic mother who didn't think me worthy enough protect me from her degenerate boyfriends. That I didn't have a dad, and that I didn't have any siblings, and I didn't have any money. Or even more, basically, that I was not brought up with the sort of etiquette and standard that they were brought up with. I didn't know how to behave at a kitchen table. I didn't know how to behave at a family gathering, or in any sort of formal environment. I only knew those things through mimicking my schoolmates. So I went through high school like this, and then at graduation, Andre and I got engaged. I remember thinking it wouldn't last. I was convinced that although he and his family seemed indifferent to my social station and family, they weren't. I was convinced that they probably spoke about me at length behind my back. Andre's parents suggested that he go to university in Canada as they were moving back in the summer after graduation. I remember having conversations with Andre about this. I was very keen on going to Canada with him. I thought maybe it would feel like a fresh start for me. My own mother was indifferent to Andre and his family. She was pretty indifferent to me around that time too. It's as if time had gone on and she had become completely removed from me and who I was. Okay, uh, just taking a moment to reflect on the story so far. It seems as if Ramon has identified what she would call sort of her moment of change, um, which was meeting um, Andre and in extension his family. And her imposter syndrome is clearly very prominent in her life at this point. The reason that Ramon's story really stuck out to me. And um, in conversation with her, uh, preceding her uh, sort of typing this up for me to read out was because I thought that imposter syndrome was something that was quite relatable and, and really worth talking about. Um, obviously in this situation, it's it's more through the lens of the family dynamic and, and social structure rather than maybe career and business. Because I often hear people talk about imposter syndrome as a function of their identity, uh, you know, in the boardroom or something like that. But i yeah, I think that imposter syndrome is quite a prevalent thing and is really worth discussing. And I imagine so that it is quite common for people who, like Ramon, sort of elevate their station in life through social interaction um, and and uh, mixing themselves up with people of a different station in life. Because what I'm really seeing here is that she identifies as being a, uh, you know, quote unquote, degenerate, while Andre and her um, other friends at school, they don't really understand that reality. And so although Although she's away from her you know her home life it's it's only for a moment in time and it's only until she goes back home when she's back in the reality of her situation which is that she's a child of a an absentee you know father and a, and a mom who couldn't really care less um from what it sounds like but yeah let's get back to her story and see how it sort of unravels past this point Sometime after our engagement, Andre's parents wanted to pay for my university education in Canada. I was completely emotional the moment they suggested this. Although many Canadians might suggest that post-secondary education in their country is quite affordable, that sort of money was still unfathomable to me. I couldn't wrap my head around the cost of even just a semester. I was going to university. It was being paid for by people who loved me and wanted to to do it out of love for me. It just simply didn't compute. Andre and I had an apartment close to the university and we both completed undergraduate degrees. This still is one of the most wonderful times of my life. I love my life, my tiny apartment, our secondhand furniture. It was blissful. It was really incredible. Andre did not share this reality with me. His scope of reference was not aligned with with mine. I knew that we were on two different planes. Sure, he was happy and in love, but was he experiencing a level of gratitude that was punctuating every moment? No, he wasn't. I literally felt like I was at the top of the world. A child of abuse who has been taken advantage of the way I had never goes to a new country with the love of her life to start a fancy education. A child of abuse doesn't get enough money in the bank to buy themselves a new coat come winter. I knew this was not an ordinary trajectory in any sense. It was toward the end of university that I tell Andre about my imposter syndrome and what had happened to me as a child. He was not shocked, and it didn't seem to change his opinion about me anyway. Yet the imposter syndrome persists. Yeah, again, something that really stands out to me here is, um, I've thought about this before, I suppose, in regards to people who are born into wealth, security, and st- stability uh, versus people who come into it at an older age. So Ramon really comes into a sense of family, you know, truly at the end of high school with her being welcomed into Andre's family as his fiance and future wife, and then his parents really taking on responsibility for her development and her future um, through offering her the opportunity to be um, educated, uh, free of cost. I, I can imagine the sort of disillusionment between the two of them because Andre is You know, although it sounds like he's a very supportive and wonderful partner, we'll never truly understand what Ramon or how Ramon understands herself in relation to people like him or even in relation to what's happening to her. Um, So I'm sure as a 10-year-old child, let's say Andre was probably already talking about, you know, with his parents, what he was going to do when he grew up. Whereas Ramon, those conversations were likely not being had. That conversation of education or financial security or bettering oneself were probably not things that she imagined would be a part of her life by the time she was, you know, I presume uh, 18 or, or 17 um, or maybe 19. So I can imagine that sort of disconnect between her and her now fiancé, Andre. Shortly after university, my Canadian friend and I started a business. It was a boutique business. Within five years, Lisa and I had grown our business to two locations in the city that we live in. It was quite amazing for me to build something, and my relationship with Lisa strengthened to the point where I now feel like we are more like sisters than just friends. I have come to really enjoy my work and really feel a sense of reward. While I was doing this, Andre began to work, bought a few homes in a desirable vacation destination close to our home. We began renting them out as short-term rentals in the summer. By this point, we can also call ourselves comfortable. A few years later, one night while Lisa and I are sitting with her children at the beach, I confide in her about my past and how it produces this feeling of constant otherness. She suggested to me a therapist and this is when the third act begins. That therapist changed my reality and I am forever grateful." It was ironic because in that moment Lisa brought up therapy, I said, that's for rich people. I thought maybe I could handle this on my own, but at the time, I was 27 and had handled it so poorly for so many years, and I was sure that it would take me much longer independently than had I had the help of a third party. My therapist and I broke down all of my walls together. I consider the time, money, and labor that I invested into therapy the single greatest gift I could have given myself. I'm now a huge advocate for therapy. Okay, so just a minor digression here. When Ramon is talking about uh, pursuing therapy, but that that's for rich people, I couldn't help but feel a sense of connection to that because I, I often find myself thinking that as well. Like as if uh, mental health um, resources, or at least you know, really robust mental health resources, are only available for um, really specific people, and outside of those really specific people, those resources aren't simply aren't available. And so when you are in one of those those groups maybe you don't have health insurance or maybe you you know can't afford the the cost of a th- seeing a therapist you know continuously you start to you start to reason that it's not a good resource because that's how you sort of comfort yourself in not having access to it. So it's, it's kind of interesting because I'm sure outside of this one specific example, Ramon has many examples where her past thinking still bleeds into her present or her second act or her third act. It was in therapy that I developed a sense of value for myself outside of what had happened to me. I developed a sense of security and understanding that life is not one act, but many acts, and one single act does not need to define those that follow it. Of course, logically, we all know that people's lives typically do follow a certain linear path. For example, if you are a child of abuse, as I was, and had been sexually interfered with as I had, you are not likely to go to university or start a business or even be a in a healthy long-term marriage as I had been. I was in therapy for about five years and still continue to touch in every month or so. I'm 41 now and, and I rarely have flare-ups of anxiety regarding to being an imposter in this life. I volunteer at my local rape crisis center and am often comfortable sharing with others what I had gone through. My husband and I decided not to have children, but I am very active in my community and involved in the lives of the children of my friends. My businesses are healthy and I enjoy meeting the new people that stay at our short-term rental vacation properties. I continue to have an excellent relationship with my in-laws, although I think of them more as parents now. If I were to offer some advice, it would be very related to what I learned in therapy. You are not defined by what happened to you. You don't lose value because one person hurt you, took advantage of you, and you are not tarnished by those events. Those events tarnish the perpetrator. I would also say never sit too long in the seat of victimhood. If you do, like me, you might find that you feel like an imposter when a new opportunity comes along or you find yourself in a privileged or lucky life. I can say that life doesn't have to be dark and painful. Life doesn't have to be scary. Life doesn't have to be uncertain. Life can be large and you can be large. Um, and that completes this written narrative. So just to sort of wind up here, I guess in a lot of ways, the story is is actually quite an incredibly happy one because it, towards the end of the story, you really see that Ramon has sort of become, um, in a lot of ways, the perfect outcome of what had happened to her. So not only does she attend therapy and resolve her issues, but she's also active in helping other people through volunteering at a rape crisis center. Yeah, I consider this quite a happy story. But that being said, I think, you know, back to the theme of this story, uh, which is imposter syndrome, is that people with imposter syndrome, can often have and lead incredibly privileged lives and don't fully understand the depth of that. Relating back to what she had said about her time in university, that was the first time that she was away from her family and the country, you know, and the city that she had lived in when she was in her first act, as she as she calls it, where her life was marked by uncertainty, abuse, and insecurity. You know, it's, it's a very, um, I wanted to say that it's a very privileged thing to not only have a life of privilege, but to be able to actually understand that's what you have. I think a lot of people with imposter syndrome would argue that they maybe don't experience the full depth of happiness or gratitude or even presentness in their experience because they they might not be connecting with what's happening because they're so focused on I I don't deserve to be here or I'm an imposter and at any moment someone might find out. But I actually found her, you know, sort of closing advice, which all the interviewees do to be very, um, you know, short, but very um, potent because when she says those events don't tarnish, tarnish you, they tarnish the Perpetrator, um, but also don't sit too long in the seat of victimhood. That is a very eloquent and beautiful statement because I think victimhood is quite a popular topic right now, um, at least insofar as uh, when we talk about self development, uh, you know, trying to remove oneself from a sense of victimhood or trying to challenge the mindset of victimhood is is quite is is being popularized right right now but I find the link between victimhood and imposter syndrome one sort of worth mentioning as well because obviously Ramon was a victim as a child but as she becomes an adult she clearly has a lot of control over her life she becomes educated she becomes independently wealthy um, she becomes a business owner she and she becomes a clear member of her community through her work and volunteer and her connections you Know within her community, um, so there is a connection there between imposter syndrome and victimhood because the imposter is feeling the way they feel because they've defined themselves as inadequate in some way, and so if you sit with that for too long, it, it doesn't serve you. And I think that that's what maybe Ramon was trying to illustrate here was that all of this stuff that cascaded um, after she met Andre was because she sort of took that leap of faith and really you know decided to put herself out there. Um so yeah, those are my closing thoughts about this interview or this um narrative. And I wanted to thank Ramon for sharing her story. I know that not a lot of the stories on the Ordinary Folk podcast are super (laughs) happy or positive, but I genuinely feel like this one was, it had a beautiful sort of beginning, middle and end. And it also had, it was like, it was the come up story in a sense. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate having that sort of perspective on this show. And I look forward to having more happy stories in the future.